0: A breakfast meeting here, and Dr. Susanna Coconin from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel is going to be here, and it's this is sponsored actually by the Houston Area Pastors Council, which is the conservative pastors group that was the, uh, the point on the um, opposition to the bathroom ordinance last year. And so... Uh, it was kind of a last-minute awareness and last-minute notice on this, so they didn't get uh word out until Monday of this week. So uh probably not going to be a huge attendance tomorrow. So if anyone's interested in coming, y'all are invited. You can come up. You might want to make sure that the pastors get fed. Pastors are usually starving to death, from my experience. <clears throat> they don't need to eat. They're too well fed, like the bulls of Bashan. Anyhow, how many of y'all think that you may be here in the morning just so I can see kind of a head count? So we'll have probably five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, that'll be great. That'll be great just to give a little, a little more of an audience. And, uh, <clears throat> and then just reminders, the congregational meeting will follow the service on Sunday morning, this coming Sunday morning, February 21st. We also need to pray for staff for Camp Arete. Uh, Jeff said they haven't nailed everything down yet, so he didn't want to make an announcement, but he has a number of people who are interested, and they may need some more. Also a reminder that the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference will be March 16th to 18th. That's a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and we'll need volunteers in many areas. There'll be sign-up sheets for that out in the Fellowship Hall. And then um, on Tuesday, I had announced that Dr. Charles Ryrie had gone to be with the Lord. At that time, I had not seen his obituary. And according to his obituary, uh, he died Tuesday morning in Dallas. But the line that is really important that I wanted to share with you all, there's one line that's important and you need to pay attention to this. This is a sign of greatness. Okay. Okay. It's, uh, according to his obituary, you know, if anybody puts something in his obituary, it's got to be something that, that was really, really significant in that person's life. And so they wrote in his obituary that he loved his Lord, the Bible, his church, his family as well as bluebell ice cream and Magnum bars. <laughs> so as soon as I read that, it's like I forgot about the rest of it. I just wish I had known we shared that love of Magnum bars uh, before he went to be with the Lord. Last time I saw him was a couple of years ago. He was a uh, great individual. Um, hmm? Oh, yeah, men's prayer breakfast. We have not announced that, but we are going to have it. So for those of you watching, those of you who are here, we will have men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning. We always have it at the time of deacons meeting, and it's not just for the deacons, it's for all the men in the church We're try to encourage the men to come out and to be involved. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. And if necessary, confess sin and God will instantly... uh, Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the stragglers coming in back there, I announced that we're having men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning. You know, the guy who makes the sausage gravy needs that information. That's that's important. That's critical. Okay, just wanted to make sure you do that, Bob. Okay, let's uh, bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. father we're so very grateful, thankful that all for all you 've done for us, for your grace, your goodness to us, for we all know that we do not deserve any of it, but you have done this freely from your own integrity, from your righteousness, your justice, your love father we're so thankful that we have a salvation not dependent upon anything we do or don 't do, not dependent upon any human activity on our part, but uh, the trust in Jesus as Savior, that he paid it all on the cross. And we don't do anything, and we can't do anything or add anything to it. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you for that. And, Father, we continue to pray for our missionaries. We pray for George Meisinger. We pray for the Chafer Seminary Board and the uh, decisions they have to make, the leadership there. We're thankful things are moving well for the seminary. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to guide and direct us there. Thank you for your word. You're in inspired, infallible, inerrant word. And we pray that we might recognize that that is the most important authority in our life and that we need to understand it, internalize it, and apply it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're studying. I think I've got this right. This is the seventh lesson. As we have diverged out of 1st Peter to study this critical doctrine on the inerrancy and the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Scripture seems to always come under attack in one form or another, but the overt attack that has developed since the mid to early 1700s, although it came out, the thinking came out of the Enlightenment, it wasn't until you get into the early 1800s that it really began to pick up momentum, and then you had the rise of the 19th century religious liberalism and those various assaults. You also had uh, assaults that continued in, in different each generation successively in the 20th century and now in the early part of the 21st century. I'll go into that a little more next week, but what I wanted to do first before we looked at the, the history, because the history helps us understand and have perspective on, on what is going on, where we are within this 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 flow. But we need to first understand what the Bible Bible says and why we believe what we what we believe. And the reason we got into this, as I've stated in each of these lessons, is the references in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 talking about the revelation by the Holy Spirit through the prophets, and this gives us a little window of insight into the mechanics of revelation, that just because God revealed information through the prophets doesn't mean they really understood it. They still had to study it. They had to compare it with other revealed Scripture in the process of canonization, when a book or writing was a candidate to be included within the Old Testament canon, it had to be studied thoroughly to make sure that it was consistent with all previous revelation. That was one of the standards that was used. Also, it had to be written or authorized by a prophet, other things of that nature. So that's our starting point. So we got into the doctrine of inerrancy and our inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. This is our definition coming out of the West Houston Bible Church doctrinal statement that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, their individual distinctive vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, personality, or personal feelings, or any other human, human factor <coughs> that God's complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original language of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, that line's an important line because what you see in the Old Testament is when God speaks... He doesn't have to verify. He doesn't have to present a, you know, a federally authorized photo ID to show to people that he's God. When God speaks, people fall on their face, as if dead, as they are uh, confronted with a righteous, just God. So God's very voice carries authority with it, and it's embedded uh in the in the scriptures, in the voice of, of the scripture. Key verses which we've looked at, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 introduces the concept of inspiration, that God breathed out the word through the human authors. Use this uh, image last week talking about divine authority, biblical authority, divine authority is built on the a three-legged stool, inspiration infallibility and inerrancy, and I defined each one of those, and these these definitions are important. That inspiration means that God breathes out the Scripture. It emphasizes the origin of Scripture is God. It is not man. Other views that come along talk about, uh, especially within neo-orthodoxy, Neo-Orthodoxy says that the word, uh, th- th- that which is the Word of God, because they view the Bible as containing the Word of God, has other stuff in it too. And, uh, and what they will say is that it's a witness to the Word of God. It testifies to the Word of God. But they don't believe it's the inerrant, infallible, inspired uh, Word of God. So this addresses the origin. They emphasize the human side somehow cut, clutters and taints and corrupts the process of inspiration. And we would say that no, God in His sovereignty is able to preserve His word through tainted receptacles who write it so that the product is without error. Infallibility emphasizes the authority and the enduring nature of the Bible, that this is the authoritative revelation of God to man and inerrancy addresses the accuracy of God's word in the original languages, in the original autographs. Corruption could have leaked in as a result of human error in making copies. But if you start with a document that's 100% perfect, it's real easy to recover it if you have a lot of copies, even though some may have errors in it. But if you start with a document that has errors in it, how do you ever get back to an inerrant document? You don't. So, um, and then I had a quote here from Dr. Ryrie in his basic theology. I mentioned last time I had Ryrie for bib, uh, for bibliology my first year at Dallas Seminary, and uh, he, he emphasizes that the positive side, inerrancy, the "-in prefix is a negative, meaning not errant," And that's defining the Bible from a negative. He says uh, defining it from a positive is that the Bible tells the truth. Then we looked at the mechanics. Again, looking at 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, that it's breathed out by God pointing out that inspiration was in words. It's not the ideas that are inspired, because if you change a word from one synonym to another, it modifies the nuance of what is said. So it's not just the ideas, it's the very words, the specific words that are inspired. 1 Corinthians 2.13 and Joshua 23.14, which says at the end, not one word of them, the things that God spoke, has failed. Uh, We looked at how in some passages God wrote, such as he wrote the law with his finger, but dictation is not the normal modus operandi. That is, by the way, that's the orthodox Jewish view, is that God dictated the Bible to the writers of Scripture. He dictated all of the Torah, not just the Ten Commandments, but all, all of the Torah. Now, moving on, if we think about what the Scripture says about the Word of God and about God as the author of the Word of God, we can develop a, a syllogism which expresses, uh, di- the deductive logic coming up with a conclusion about the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. There are two types of logic. Actually, there's a third type of logic, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. The, there are three basic types of logic. The, the first is, is what flows out of rationalism. In other words, you're starting with certain premises. And so a deductive uh, syllogism begins with a major premise and then states a minor premise and then a conclusion. Okay, so we we could say that all men have a soul. That is a major conclusion. It's usually a broader statement. And then your second, your minor premise is that Bill is a man. See, that's a more narrower statement. Therefore, Bill has a soul. Okay, it draws a conclusion from the Parts of the major premise and the parts of the minor premise, and if the elements in the major premise are true and all of the elements in the minor premise are true, then the conclusion is by definition true. So we can set up a a, uh, a deduction this is deductive logic. The other form of logic is induction. Induction is consistent with, with uh, empiricism. Induction is what we use in Bible study. We have a lot of data in the Bible. We have a lot of different verses that relate to what God says about his word. And so as we study those passages, then we draw conclusions, inferences from the data. And that is induction. So first of all, we'll look at at, at deductive logic. And in deductive logic, we have a clear statement in Scripture that God is absolute veracity. Veracity is a word that means truth. It is a synonym for truth. God is absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the life. I am the truth. I am the life. He defined himself as as the truth in John 14 7. Now, the statement is clearly made in Romans 3 4 when Paul says, May it never be, replying to a rhetorical question, rather let God be found true and every man a liar. He states the clear premise that God is truth, he is veracity. Another verse that uh, states this is Numbers twenty-three nineteen in the Old Testament. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So the major premise is that God is absolute truth. That is the nature of his character. John, in John, in 1 John 1, 1 through 4, uses the metaphor of light. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And light is used as a metaphor, not only for, uh, purity in terms of righteousness, but also in terms of truth. So, major premise, God is absolutely, absolute truth. Now the minor premise, Again, what we have that's similar in the two premises is the term God, and the minor premise is that God is the source of the Scriptures, according to First uh, or excuse me, that should read Second Timothy, three sixteen. God is the source of the Scriptures. So if God is absolute truth, and God is the source of the Scriptures then the conclusion would be that the scriptures are absolute truth. And this would be confirmed in John seventeen seventeen. So you see what we've done is we didn't just take a major premise that had a biblical, biblical foundation and a minor premise that had a biblical foundation, and then move to a conclusion that might not be stated specifically in the Bible. You can do that. That's called doing theology. But the conclusion in this case is confirmed by a specific statement in the Scripture. John 17, 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays to the Father, "...sanctify them." And it should be translated to be more clear. Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. That is a precise statement. So we have a major premise and a minor premise. And the rule is in logic that if the premises of a syllogism are correct, then the conclusion must be correct. So therefore, we're locked down by an absolute conclusion that the word of God, the revelation of God, must be absolute truth. Now, a problem that we get into that is raised on the other side of the the aisle here is the question about human involvement. Ignore the numbers that are up there. Uh, What about human involvement? Now, this is uh, the question that's raised here is because The assumption is that because this pure light is filtered through a corrupt soul, that what comes out can't be pure light. Of course, there's no, that's just based on autonomous reason. Where do you get the idea that God cannot supervise, superintend, or override human error? Where do you get that idea from the scripture? So, so they're making an assumption in their, in their, uh, logic chain that isn't evident from the, from the text. Now, do we have another example in the scripture of God using corrupt, fallible, sinful people to bring about absolute perfection? Do we have another example of that in the Scripture? What about the conception of Jesus? Mary is a sinner. Now, Roman Catholics don't believe that. Their doctrine of immaculate conception, if you're not a Catholic, you probably don't know this. If you are a Catholic, you probably don't know this. The doctrine of immaculate conception doesn't refer to the conception of Jesus, it refers to the conception of Mary. Okay? So now I want to rant about the Pope for a minute. The Pope's been down in Mexico. And, and on my way here, I should never do this. Uh, I tried to make a couple of phone calls. I often talked to Dan Ingram on the way in or something, and Dan was busy doing something, nobody to listen. So I turned on talk radio, and I don't know who was doing the interview, but they were interviewing presidential candidate John Kasich, the governor of Ohio. And I have no idea what his religious predilections are, but he was trying to be very political and, and politically correct and non-offensive in his answer. And he he was being asked what he thought about the Pope's visit to Mexico, and he said, well, I'm pro-Pope. The contrast that he's making is, is comments that the Pope made apparently today or yesterday that were very negative about Donald Trump because Donald Trump wants to close the borders and of course the pope is an idiot and he wants to have everything open. You know, and they're going to be so brave. Don't you didn't you love it back last year when everybody's coming in across the border in Europe and he says, "Oh, everybody needs to take in refugees. And we're going to set an example. The Vatican's going to take in one family." <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So the pope's down there and he makes some kind of comment where he's basically saying Donald Trump's not acting like a Christian. And the first thing I thought of was, how would he know? <laughs> how would he know? And, and then, uh, so they're asking Kasich this, and Americans are pretty much ignorant of, of Christian, Christianity, religion, or anything today. I mean, they're just, they don't have a clue. And they've just heard all kinds of, of, of mythology And the thing that you have to understand, if you're a Protestant and you're asked, well, what do you think about the Pope? The answer is, I'm a Protestant. Protestants haven't cared about what the Pope says since 1517. We don't. It's irrelevant. The guy's meaningless. And that's what it means to be a Protestant, is we don't listen to the Pope. So there's my rant on the Pope. It doesn't matter what the Pope says, except he's going to lead a lot of people astray which he's doing down down in Mexico, and he always wants to fight for the wrong side, it seems. Uh, So the question is, what about human involvement? And in the example of the conception of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit was able to uh, cause the Humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ to be conceived in the womb of Mary without human male involvement. Now, the sin nature is passed down through the male. And so Mary was able to conceive a perfect embryo. And that gave birth to a perfect human being who was without sin. That is, he did not inherit Corruption did not inherit a sin nature from um, from Joseph, uh, from Adam through Joseph, and he was born sinless as Adam was created sinless. So God has the ability because he's what's that word? Omnipotent Hello. people who say he can't do something, I think there's somewhere in the Bible that says something with God, nothing is impossible. Maybe they took a razor blade and they had a textual problem there. It wasn't in the living Bible, so they didn't know. Um, but that's the idea. God can can do that. And so what we see here in the passage we've looked at a couple of times is this word uh, in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, that, and especially in verse 21, prophecy never came by the will of man. It w- did not originate in human will or human volition. But holy men of God, that doesn't mean they were morally pure. Holy means set apart to the service of God. The word kadosh in the Hebrew and hagias in the Greek doesn't mean, it's not a synonym for being righteous, perfectly righteous and sinless. It doesn't have a moral connotation at all. Two lines of reasoning to demonstrate that are, first of all, the word holy is applies to all the furniture that's in the, t- in the tabernacle and the temple. The last time I looked, a chair, a bowl, uh, spoons and knives and tables uh, can neither be moral nor immoral. They are amoral. They are without morality. So holy doesn't mean uh, morally pure. It means set apart to the service of God. The other Line of reasoning is that in the ancient world, uh, the masculine and feminine forms of the noun kadosh were used to describe the temple prostitutes who served in the fertility religions. So they're not morally pure either. So the idea means simply to be set apart to the service, service of God. So the men of God, the prophets who are writing the scripture are set apart to the service of God and they spoke not on their own but as they were moved by God the Holy Spirit. Now this verb that's translated moved is the uh, Greek verb pharaoh. And it's used in one other significant place in Acts 27 describing what was happening to the ship Paul was on that was about to be shipwrecked as they were taking Paul from Caesarea by the sea to Rome. And in verse 15 we read, So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive, we let her move. Okay, it's, this, it's the blue box on the bottom, it's the imperfect passive indicative. It indicates that the ship was passive to the wind. The wind did the action. So this is the idea the Holy Spirit performs the action. He's moving the writers of Scripture. They're not moving on their own. And then the same verb is used two verses later in Acts 27:17. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven, or so were moved, uh, by the wind, the wind just carried them. They were rudderless; they they just went wherever the wind uh, moved them. Now, in a work called "The Authority: uh, an, an Inspiration of Scripture," written by or inspiration and authority of Scripture, written by a well-known one of the foremost theologians in the late 19th and early 20th century, was a man by the name of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. B. Warfield. Okay, and B.B. Warfield followed A.A. Hodge. You have to have abbreviations. You know, it was Charles C. Ryrie, C.C. Ryrie. There was another guy named named E.E. Uh, um, e., um, I forget his last name now. But you had you had all these guys who had these si- same abbrevi- initials at the beginning of the name. So B.B. Warfield. Warfield was the head of the theology department at Princeton University, the heir of the Hodges. The Hodges established a dynasty of theologians at Princeton, which was the Presbyterian seminary in the United States and did not go liberal until 1927. 1927. And in the tw- in the 19th century, it was the uh, brilliant output of men like uh, Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, Casper Hodge, who was the third one in the line who also served on the faculty alongside of uh, Warfield. And their writings, defending the in- infallibility and inspiration of Scripture, established the foundation that we... Have built everything I've said on. I mean, many people today say it, it was Princeton, a Princeton theology that built the bulwark to defend biblical infallibility, and it's in the assault of uh, of liberalism in the late 19th century. Warfield is also known by the fact that he wrote a scathing book review of a little book that Lewis Berry Chafer wrote called, He That Is Spiritual. And he really didn't agree, he he misunderstood Chafer. He thought Chafer was a victorious life theologian, and he wasn't. But he used, because he hung out with a lot of the men that were victorious life and taught in those same prophecy conferences and Bible conferences, the Niagara Bible conferences, and the Northampton Bible Conferences that Moody had in Massachusetts. Because he hung out with all, he had picked up some of that uh, Victorious Life Keswick uh, uh, vocabulary, but he didn't use it the same way. And if you want to get into some of the emphasis on that, go back to the 2010, no, 2012 Chafer Conference, and... Uh, read some of the papers, listen to some of the speakers there that deal with, with this issue. It's a very important issue, uh, in understanding there is a dispensationally distinct sanctification. But, uh, Warfield's book, Inspiration Authority of the Bible, was a collection of articles that, that he had written dealing with these themes. And there's a picture of him as a young man, as an older man. And that was one of the first books I bought. Before I ever went to seminary and read through. A fabulous book. And in this, he says this, related to First Peter chapter, uh, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, In this singularly precise and pregnant statement, there are several things which require to be carefully observed. There is, first of all, the emphatic denial that prophecy, that is to say, on the apocalypse, hypothesis upon which we are working scripture okay so he said the emphatic denial that prophecy that is scripture owes its origin to human initiative that's the clear statement no prophecy of scripture is of one's own interpretation he says no prophecy ever was brought that is came is the word used in the english version text with was brought in the revised version margin by the will of man He goes on, he says, then there is the equally emphatic assertion that its source lies in God. It was spoken by men indeed, but the men who spoke it spake from God. And then the third thing he notes is, and a remarkable clause is here inserted and thrown forward in the sentence that that stress may fall on it, which tells us how it could be that men in speaking should speak not from themselves, but from God. It was, quote, as born, that's that word as driven, uh, as born, it is the same word which was rendered, was brought above, and might possibly be rendered brought here by the Holy Spirit that they spoke. Speaking thus under the determining influence of the Holy Spirit, the things they spoke were not from themselves, but from God." And this is the biblical view. Now, one of the reasons I do this is the same reason Lewis Berry Chaffer did If you read Chaffer's Systematic Theology, it's eight volumes. And in the in the 1980s, uh, John Walvoord, uh abridged it down to two volumes. One of the major reasons he could do that was because when Lewis Berry Chaffer wrote that systematic theology. He, you may not know this, but Lewis Chafer was ordained in the Southern Presbyterian Church. And in the early 30s, Lewis Chafer was brought up on heresy charges because he was a dispensationalist. Okay? And there was all kinds of lies and, and innuendo and calumnies that were being spread about dispensationalists. And so Chafer wanted to show and In one sense, his systematic theology is an apologetic for dispensationalism. He wanted to show throughout that dispensationalists were orthodox in their view of the Bible, their view of theology proper, their view of christology, pneumatology, soteriology ecclesiology, but in ecclesiology, it begins to shift because of dispensationalism, and eschatology is of course is of course different. So what Schaefer did to show that that he was orthodox, was just about every other paragraph. He has anywhere from a half a page to three-page quotes from other theologians. He quotes Warfield, he quotes Shedd, he quotes Calvin, he quotes Luther, he quotes all these different theologians. And if you just take all the quotes out, you'll shrink it from eight volumes to two just about. And that was one of the main things that Walver did uh, <clears throat> in 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 shrinking it. So uh, these guys were the noted theologians of, of their era, and in fact, those who oppose inerrancy today often say that it's just a construct of Princetonian theology which was built on an Enlightenment foundation of common sense theology, and it's not biblical. Ha! It is. But that's their argument. So what we see in this is that the Holy Spirit from 1 Peter to, uh, 2 Peter 2, 1 to 20 and 21, that the Holy Spirit is the agent of revelation. That's His role within the Trinity. The Son's role is to reveal the Father. The Spirit's role is to oversee divine revelation. Second thing we learn from this passage is that what men wrote did not originate with them, it didn't they didn't come up with it, it wasn't their ideas it wasn't their opinions it came from god who controlled the process freeing it from error remember in john 16:13 the holy spirit is called the spirit of truth so he controls it frees it from error and then third we learned that god prevented the sin natures of the the sin nature of the writers from diverting misdirecting confusing or erroneously recording his message. God can do that. When he, especially in, so he's not overriding their volition in relation to their salvation or their sanctification. He's overriding their volition in regard to what they're writing to make sure that it is without error so that God can accomplish, uh, his, his purposes. Okay? Now, I told you to ignore these numbers. This is point five. And it's not point 0.5. just ignore that. we gonna look at how Jesus used Scripture. What is the example that we have of Jesus in relation to the authority and the infallibility of the Word of God? What is, does Jesus tell us about the origin of Scripture? Now, remember, uh, inspiration is a word that tells us about the origin of Scripture. Infallibility is a word that tells us about the the authority and the power of Scripture. And inerrancy tells us about the truthfulness and accuracy of Scripture. Okay, so let's look at how Jesus uses Scripture. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and this is the situation where Jesus is led by God the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he is going to be tested, evaluated by the devil. The word's translated tempted, and that's certainly one nuance, but it's a a test. Uh, It's an objective test. Temptation occurs two ways. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to be on a diet or not, but when you're on a diet, what I have found is that I have to eat small amounts or I'll get real hungry. Once I get real hungry, game over. And over. Um, but if I have just been eating correctly all day and my appetite is satiated, you can put a cherry pie and ice cream down in front of me or a Magnum bar, and I can say, no thanks. But if I've gone too long and I've got the hungries, watch out, I will take the whole box of Magnum bars. I don't care anymore. I'm hungry. Okay, so if there's nothing internally weak then you can people can put stuff in front of you all day long and even though there's not an internal appeal there's still an an external offer it's still a test it's still a temptation just because you're not going to yield to it doesn't mean it's not a temptation just because you don't want to yield to it doesn't mean it's not a temptation People can tempt you to do all kinds of things, and sometimes you are attracted to it, sometimes you're not. That's not what makes it a temptation. So our Lord didn't have a sin nature. So He's not. he doesn't have the problem we've got, and that is the fact that when somebody says, let's go sin, we go, yeah, right, okay, attaboy, how soon can I do it? Because that's what our sin nature wants to do. It's attracted to automatically like iron filings to a magnet our sin nature is attracted to sin we got to say down boy we don't have to do that anymore okay so jesus is going in the wilderness satan is going to put these tests in front of him and as he offers these tests jesus is going to respond and he gives us an example of how we should respond so he, uh, it happens during A period of of weakness when he's gone 40 days and 40 nights without food. And now he's hungry. And let me tell you, anyone here can go 40 days and 40 nights without food. Any one of you can do that. Some of you, you look a little thin, maybe you won't make it. But there's some of you, 60 days maybe. But any human being can go 40 days without food. You can't go 40 days without water, but you can go 40 days without food. And what happens is that after about a day, your appetite begins to diminish and disappear. And then you're good to go for the next 38 days. But when you get to about day 38 or 39, that appetite starts coming back with a vengeance because your body's saying if you go much longer, uh, everything's going to start shutting down. You're going to die. So... This is not, my point on this is Jesus isn't trying to do, isn't doing this in the power of his deity. I mean, any human being can do this. So, he's fasted 40 days, 40 nights. Now he's in a position of weakness. He's hungry. And the tempter comes along and says to him, reattach this, uh, says to him, if you are the Son of God, now I use the first-class condition there because Satan knows he's the son of God. So he basically is saying, if you are and you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. He knows Jesus is omnipotent, and all Jesus has to do is 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 just look at at rocks. And if you've been to Israel before, there's a lot of rocks. It's almost like Connecticut. A lot of rocks. Okay, so Jesus just had to look at the rock and say bread and You know, it's immediately going to be the best bread around. How does Jesus respond? He says, verse 4, here on the screen, he says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what we see here is the way Jesus answers a temptation is by quoting Scripture. He doesn't quote a doctrinal principle or an abstract principle or philosophical idea. He quotes the very words of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter eight verse three. And so he is quoting and he says in the quote, it's by every word. It's not most words, it's not some words, it, it's it's saying every word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, because every word is breathed out by God, not just some of them. And he also says, it is written. He doesn't say it testifies or it witnesses to the word of God. It says it is the word of God. It says it is written, period, over and out. So Jesus responds by, by quoting Scripture verbatim. Now, in the second temptation... The devil took him up on the holy city. So he takes him to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. That is the corner uh, of the... It would be the uh, eastern, the southeastern corner of the temple wall, which at that time uh, was about a 100... I think it was about 130, 140 feet above the Kidron Valley. That's a nice drop. And when you hit bottom, you, you, you go splat. And so Satan takes him up there and he says, if you're the Son of God, and you are, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now, he's going to quote Scripture, but he's going to misquote Scripture. He said, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your, your foot against the stone. Now, I want you to notice the important word there in... Satan's statement is that word and. Notice the line before that is a quote and the line after that's a quote, but and stands in other words, he left something out. He's not quoting the entire Psalm. This is this is a quote from Psalm ninety one, eleven, and twelve. And the part he leaves out is to keep you in all your ways. Now the implication of That word, to keep you in all your ways, or to uh, uh, guard you in all your ways, is that God is going to preserve his people, but that doesn't mean that they should take needless risks. They are to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. They are to be walking in the path of God. And so what Satan is, is proposing to Jesus is to take a needless, irrational risk just to test God. And so Jesus' response is, in verse 7, it is written. Once again, he is quoting directly from Scripture, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and he says, you, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So he is pairing each one of these thrusts from Satan with a direct and a specific quote from Scripture. Okay, and he does the same thing uh, in the rest of these temptations. I'm not going to go further in that. So what we see here is Jesus has an extremely high view of Scripture, and it extends down to the various words. Now, there are other things that we find uh, in Jesus' teaching. He confirms that Adam and Eve were created by God in his image. So if Jesus believed that God created Adam and Eve in his image, uh, we've studied that recently in Matthew nineteen three through 5, where Jesus quotes from both Genesis one twenty six to 28, and then he quotes again from Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2. He shows that he viewed both chapters as equal authority. Now that's going to come up in either, if I get there tonight, uh, because that's one of those passages that, that liberals and moderates try to challenge and say, see, there's a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And they come up with two or three things that seem to be contradictory. And they think that Genesis 2 is one creation account and Genesis 1 is another creation account. But Jesus quotes from both of them as if they have equal, equal authority. And he believes in a literal Adam and a literal Eve that immediately gets rid of all the attempts of theistic evolutionists and others who try to compromise in Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 and have some form of evolutionary development that culminates in early mankind. Jesus believed there was Adam and Eve. So if Jesus was wrong, then what else was he wrong about? And maybe he was wrong about who he was. Maybe he was wrong about what he accomplished on the cross. Maybe he was wrong about everything. Maybe he was just some nut job, so let's go party. That's the only option that we have. So Jesus has to be taken at his word. Another event from the early part of Genesis is that he confirms the reality of the flood of Noah. In Luke 17, 26, and 27 We read Jesus saying, as it was in the days of Noah. So he affirms the historicity of Noah, that Noah existed, Noah was a person. And he says, and he makes this comparison, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So he believes Noah built an ark and that Noah and his family entered the ark and that the flood came and it destroyed them all. So he also affirms a worldwide or universal flood, and the only ones who survived were Noah, uh Noah and his family. He also affirms the episode in of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In light of the same-sex marriage issue, this is an interesting that of all the other events Jesus could have recognized and affirmed in the Old Testament. He affirms that so that we know that Jesus was clear on the concept of what was going on at Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, "...likewise as it was also in the days of Lot, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all." So he he recognizes and affirms the reality of what happened Uh, At Sodom and Gomorrah. Another miraculous episode that took place in the Old Testament has to do with Jonah. This is questioned by some today. There are some that, that, that New Testament scholars that are evangelical and who claim to believe in inerrancy, they have redefined Jonah in terms of its genre, and it's sort of a prophetic myth. And there wasn't necessarily a literal Jonah, a literal fish, or literal three days and three nights. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, it wasn't a whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Whales, from what I've read, whales have small throats, so they couldn't swallow a man whole. But there are fish that are capable of swallowing a manhole and there are examples of that where it's happened out on the ocean and then they've managed to catch the fish and cut him open and pull the guy out and he survived and and a situation where that has occurred what's interesting is the stomach acids have bleached the guy white while he's in the belly of the fish and if that's what happened to Jonah then Jonah looks like an albino walking into Nineveh and he would be a sight that would gain much attention as people were looking at this strange apparition. Now, moving on, a couple of other verses that show Jesus' high view of Scripture. In Matthew five seventeen and 18, so you're already in Matthew 4. Just look over uh, into the next chapter uh, in, the, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away... That's a pretty long time. That's the destruction of the current heavens and earth after the great white throne judgment. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all has been fulfilled. Now, this is a really important verse because he says that that what's important in the Scripture is not just the words, but the forms of the words, the very letters that are used because a letter, just, just a stroke or a slight or small letter can change the whole meaning of a word. And so he's saying inspiration extends down to the minutiae of the words. For example, the, when he says the word jot, this is the Hebrew letter yud or yod as it's sometimes pronounced. Modern Hebrew pronounce it yod. Uh, it looks like an apostrophe. It's pretty small. And it represents the letter Y or J. And it's the smallest Hebrew letter. And a tittle is the smallest part of a letter. And in Hebrew, you can see here, the first letter is the letter hey, and the second letter is the letter hate. And if you look closely, there's a little bit of gap right here, and there's no little bit of gap over here. Now, those are two completely different letters, and it would change them. If you had one or the other, it would change the word, and therefore it would change the meaning of the word. Now, in English, we have similar things. I have examples here like the O, a lowercase o and a lowercase p, and the lowercase p differs from a lowercase o only in that it has a line on the left that descends below the line. And you have the letter b and the letter d, and the only thing distinguishing them is you have a a vertical line on the left for a b and a vertical line on the right for the letter d. Now, this can make quite a bit of difference. For example, we have the words bog, b-o-g, and dog, D O G. So if you're reading something and you see the word bog, it's gonna have a different meaning than the word dog. Another example would be the word rug. The only difference between an uppercase R is that leg, the between an uppercase R and an uppercase P is the uppercase R has an extra leg on it. And that's a that's a tittle. It it's just a, a stroke, a smallest part of, of a letter. So we look at words like In English, like lit, hit, and bit. Those are three different words, and the only distinction is a tittle. Or the word cat and oat. The the lowercase c is closed fully to make the difference between uh, the letter c and the letter o. Fun, pun, run, and bun all are words that are distinguished by just a tittle. So that little mark changes the meaning of a word and can change the whole meaning of of a sentence. Uh, In Hebrew, you have the difference between the letter bait and the letter kaf. And in a bait in the lower right corner, that horizontal line extends just a little bit beyond the vertical line, whereas it's a smooth transition in the letter kaf, which is a K. And in the letter dalit, you notice there's a little... Uh, extension of the horizontal line beyond the vertical line, and in the letter resh, there's no, no difference. And if you're reading footnotes in the Hebrew Bible, you, you will need glasses soon. Okay, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but those make a difference. So uh, Jesus is asserting that, that inspiration extends down to the minutia, the minute letters in the text. And so we can count on the Bible. It's not just the words. It's not even just, I mean, it's not the ideas. It's not even just the words. It's the form of the words. Like a difference between run and ran. Present tense and past tense are the difference between seed and seeds, as we'll see in an example uh, in just a minute in Galatians. That's the difference between a singular and a plural. And and. Doctrine is built on that difference, so minutia is important. For example, in John ten, uh, John ten thirty, Jesus makes a dramatic claim to be to have unity with the Father, and he says, "I and the Father are one." Now, this doesn't come across in the English because the word "one." Uh, doesn't have a necessarily grammatical significance to it. But in Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, in Greek, this is the word, it's hen. And hen is a neuter singular for the word one, and hase is the masculine singular for the word one. Now, the difference is if Jesus uses the Neuter singular, he's talking about one thing. I and the Father are one thing. We're identical. If he uses the word in the masculine singular, he's saying we're one person. We're the same person. That would be Unitarianism or modalism, actually. Uh, Then they would be the same person. But Jesus isn't saying we're the same person. He's saying we're both the same thing. We're both fully divine. We're both fully, fully God. Uh, another example of where Jesus uses a tense to emphasize the truth when he's con- confronting the Philistines and uh, he's been talking about Abraham and they say, well, who are you? You're pretty young to be talking about Abraham. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now that's bad grammar but he's making a point because I am is the meaning of Yahweh, the name of God. So he's claiming deity. And some people say, well, you're just kind of making that up. That seems pretty abstract. Well, it wasn't abstract for the Pharisees because the text says they bent been over and picked up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. They understood he was making a claim to deity. And it's based on the fact that he's using a present tense, I am, and not saying uh, I was. So that's uh, that's significant. Galatians... Uh, 3.16, Galatians 3.16, we read, uh, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, this is Paul writing, he meaning um, uh, God, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. So he's going to build a doctrine on the fact that it's a singular noun, not a plural noun. And And Paul says, and to your seed, who is Christ? So he's saying that that promise in Genesis is a reference to uh, reference to Christ. okay? So what do we see here? that God has given us everything. This is the, the uh, conclusion here, going to Second Peter 1:3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is the doctrine known as the sufficiency of Scripture. He didn't give us most things, some things, 90% of it. He gave us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We're talking about the word because when, you get, when he develops it in the next sentence, he says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So, And it's by those promises, that is by the word, that we became partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world that is by lust. Okay, I want to give you four corollaries. If we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, these are four things that are true. If that's true, then these four things are true. And the first is though every word is equally infallible and authoritative, not every word is equally applicable to every believer. Okay, when when we're reading in genealogies, that's not necessarily applicable to us, but it was significant in the Old Testament because it identified who the clans and tribes were. Uh, You read in the Mosaic law that if you have a rebellious teenager, you're supposed to take him out into the public square and stone him to death. That applied under the Mosaic law, which was for Israel. It was never applied. I don't think they ever applied it in Israel, but it was never applied to Gentile nations, and it's not applied to the church. So every word is infallible, Every word is inerrant, but it is not equally applicable to every believer. Second correlation, if every word is breathed out by God, then it's the responsibility of the pastor teacher to investigate and exegete every word, the entire counsel of God, though not every word necessarily needs to be taught in terms of all of its detail. Times a factor. We could spend hours just doing word studies, but we have to present conclusions and keep going forward. Third correlation is if every word is breathed out by God, then the Bible is absolutely and totally sufficient for salvation, for spiritual growth, and for problem solving. We don't need to go elsewhere to understand how to solve problems. We just need to trust the sufficiency of Scripture and bury ourselves in the Word of God. This is the point in Second Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, which I looked at just a minute ago. Fourth corollary, if every word is from God to us, then nothing, nothing should be more important than learning and applying God's word. If this is God's personal correspondence to every believer, then nothing is more important than understanding what that means. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening, to realize how significant and important it is and how authoritative it should be in our lives. Father, we pray that we might be challenged to read it, to memorize it, to learn it, to apply it in every area of our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.